Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, the 15th chapter. We read on down to chapter 16 and verse 4, but there are so many lessons that we didn't bring out, and I want to back up to 15 verse 1. And the prophecy concerning Moab has a great deal more to uh, deal with than we hurriedly went over last in our last lesson. And the prophecy covers chapter 15, 1 through 16, 14. In other words, the two chapters, 15 and 16. And I think I gave you a, a kind of a list of the prophecies that we would have during from chapter 13, 1 to 23, verse 18. We'll have to do, and I'll give you the divisions later, because the verses, if I pointed out, it might be a little too uh, boring. But we dealt with Babylon and Assyria already and Philistia. And now we're with Moab. Then we'll have Damascus, which is uh, Syria, instead of Assyria, it's Assyria. And the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia and then Egypt and Assyria's conquest. And then the desert areas and Tyre. So down through chapter 23, we'll have all these divisions. But I know it would be mind-boggling to try to uh, think about them uh, all at one time. So I want us to concentrate tonight again upon this section dealing with Moab. Now, we'll try to read chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. It says, The burden of Moab, because in the night are of Moab, is laid waste. In other words, this chapter is going to talk about the destruction that's announced concerning Moab, the Moabites, as well as the 16th chapter. And uh, it says, And brought to silence, because in the night Kerr of Moab is laid waste, and brought to silence. So you have R and Kerr both in Moab. It says, He is gone up to Bajath and to Dibon, the high places, that's where they worshipped uh, their idols. And that's part of the reason that God's judgment was upon them. It says, Moab shall howl over Nebo and over Mediba. On all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth. All of this speaks of mourning and, and dismal uh, Judgment. The judgment will come upon them in a dismal situation. On the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone shall howl, weeping abundantly. If we'd go through and find all the things that relate to weeping and howling and, and mourning, and uh, you would have almost in every verse something that pertains to it. Because of judgment of God. And Heshbon shall cry. Look at the word cry. And Eliloth, their voice shall be heard even unto Jahaz, their forearm, therefore the armed, rather, therefore the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out. His life shall be grievous unto him. My heart shall cry out for Moab. Now, this, this is the prophet because of their judgment. He says, my heart, and as well as God's heart. My heart shall cry out for Moab. His fugitive shall flee unto Zoar, and heifer, heifer of three years old for the mounting up of Luheth, with weeping shall they go, uh, shall they go it up. For in the way of Horonium they shall raise up a cry of destruction. For the waters of Nimrim shall be desolate. For the hay is withered away, the grass faileth. There is no green thing. Therefore the abundance uh, they have gotten, and that which they have laid up, shall they carry away. 
to the brook of the willows, for the cry is gone round about the borders of Moab, the howling thereof unto Eglaim, and the howling thereof unto Beer Elim, for the waters of Diamond shall be full of blood, the waters, even the waters shall be filled with blood. For I will bring more upon Diamond, lions shall lions upon him that escapeth of Moab and upon the remnant of the land. Let's read all of sixteen as well, and then we'll come back and talk about it. It says, Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land. This was a lamb to pay tribute. From Selah to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be that as a wandering bird uh, cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noon, noonday. Hide the outcast, bewray not him that wandereth. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, uh, Moab. Be thou a covert to them that... From the face of the spoiler, for the executioner is at an end, the spoiler ceaseth. The oppressors are consumed out of the land, and in mercy shall the throne be established. Now, this verse, the fifth verse, refers especially to Christ's coming in view and when the throne is established in judgment. Though any throne that is established has to be established much the same way. Let me read it again. Verse 5, 16, 5. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in, in truth in the tabernacle of David. And that definitely refers to a future time. Judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. We have heard of the pride of Moab. Now here you have Moab's pride is what brings the judgment. He is very proud, even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Therefore shall Moab howl for Moab. Everyone shall howl for the foundations of ker shall ye mourn. Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languisheth. And the vine of Sibma, the lords of the heathen, then, uh, then have broken down the principal plants thereof. And it says, they are come even to Jazer. They wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Therefore, I will bewail with the weeping of Jazer, the vine of Sibma. I will water thee with my tears, O Heshbon, and Eleth. For the shouting for thy summer fruits and for the harvest is fallen. And gladness is taken away. You know, God can bring... Turn the joy that you have into sorrow. And the gladness is taken away, and joy out of the plentiful field. And in the vineyards there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. In other words, desolation, lack of fruitfulness. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. Wherefore, my vows shall sound like an harp for Moab, and mine inward parts for It shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary of the high place, that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord hath spoken, saying, Within three years, and this is a prophecy that will come to pass, from the time the prophet began to speak of it in the first part of the 15th chapter, he says it will come to pass, 
Now that which the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years as the years of an hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be contemned with all that great multitude, and the remnant shall be very, very small and feeble. In other words, he's saying a remnant of Moab is to be left, and in the time of the end we'll, we'll find Moab mentioned again. So, in reading these two chapters, we have a great deal that we might say about them. And I'd like to try to bring you as much as I can on them. First, if you'll notice the 15th chapter, let's backtrack a minute. The destruction is announced in all of chapter 15. And in chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, you have God's call to Moab to repent. And, of course, we find a lack of repentance. He tells how that they should repent. And then in verses 6 through 14, we have... Moab's pride and judgment, and their judgment is because of their pride. <clears throat> Moab's sin and judgment are frequently mentioned by the prophets. You find them mentioned over in the book of Amos, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And Amos says, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And we find that there's a lot to be uh, thought about. There are three clear and simple uh, features that characterize Moab. Three clear and simple features. First of all, his origin. Where did Moab come from and the Moabites come from? He was the offspring of a horrible incest. Do most of you know where the Moabites came from? Lot's elder daughter. An incest in the family. And the Moabites and the Ammonites came from two incestuous situations between Lot and his two daughters. After Lot was delivered out of Sodom. And we see how low man can fall. And we see how low, uh, when we say man, we say mankind. Because the daughters were more involved in this than, than Lot. Lot became drunk and they, became, uh, they, they took charge of that situation. And they took advantage of that situation. And both, had, uh, daughter, uh, both the daughters had sons by their father, which was so horrible to mention that we dare we hardly dare mention it but it was their offspring he was the offspring of horrible incest and remember the Moabites were a cursed nation remember Ruth was a Moabitess and she found grace in the eyes of Boaz typical of Christ and even the most outcast and the most condemned and the most uh, the one that is uh, really, under condemnation, can find grace and forgiveness with the Lord, because Boaz is a picture of the Lord. And we find that, uh, typically, uh, the Moabites represent the worldliness of true Christians. Did you know that Christians become so worldly that they become like the Moabites? In other words, a uniting of the Lord's people with the world. If you unite yourself as a true child of God, and you go unite yourself with worldliness and ungodliness, you are typically a Moabite. And how many Christians are bewailing the worldliness of their children today and has their own worldliness nothing to do with it? Has their own worldliness nothing to do with the worldliness of your children? That's why we need to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so, get back to the Lord. And if by uh, some rebellious child that they go off, even though you've done the best you can, and many mothers and fathers have done this, and yet have a child, a son or a daughter that's rebellious and go the wrong way, 
and in spite of all the prayers and the love and the Christian upbringing. And that's the first thing about Moab, the Moabites, was their origin. The second thing is that Moab's inheritance lay on the east side of Jordan. They lay on the east side of Jordan. Now listen carefully. Just as the two and a half tribes love the fertile fields, so adapted to their own wealth, Remember, there's two and a half tribes of Israel that when they passed over, when, before they were to go over Jordan and possess the land of Canaan, they said, let us remain on this side of Jordan for our inheritance. We call them, you know what we call those kind? Borderland Christians. They just don't want to go over into Canaan. The fertile fields on the other side are just too tempting. And God permitted them to have their inheritance there. But sometimes what God permits you to have is not the very best thing for you. It's because of your own selfishness and stubborn will that you have what you want. And God says, okay, if that's where you want it, that's where you can have it. Sometimes we choose our own inheritance against the perfect will of God. We say, I'll take this because this is what I want. God says, okay, if you're determined, I'll just let you have that. And remember that they were their inheritance like the two and a half tribes. Moab's inheritance was also on the on the east side, east side of Jordan. And let me say another thing about the two and a half tribes at this point. The two and a half tribes of Israel that stayed on the east side of Jordan, Moses said to them, you'll have to go over and help your brethren take the land, and you'll have to go over and fight for their inheritance, because all of Israel is to be one. We as Christians are to be united in our efforts to win the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so that, he says, you'll have to go over, and, and he says, if you do not do that, be sure your sin will find you out. You know what uh, Moses was saying to that two and a half tribes? He was saying the sin of neglect is a great sin. Have you ever heard preachers, evangelists especially, especially say, now then, all your skeletons are going to come out of the closet and the Bible says, be sure your sin you fi- will find you out. It was not the sin committed that, that Moses was speaking about. It was the sin omitted that he was speaking about. So to keep that in proper context, the sin of omission will find you out instead of the sin of commission. Now we know that sin will be revealed in whatsoever man soweth that shall he also reap. But you know, a lot of times we take too much liberty with the Word of God and fail to get the message. And when the evangelist gets up and he preaches, be sure your sin, you'll find you out. And he's talking about something you kept in secret and so on, this and that and the other. That, that wasn't what Moses was talking about. If you keep it in the context, he said, if you don't go over and help your brethren, be sure your sin will find you out. Your lack of concern to fight the battle for those that you're to fight for is your sin. And so when we do not do what we know, uh, James says, He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And so you and I need to do what we know is right to do. And that neglect is just as much sin as anything else. And another thing, the Moabites, the Moab's land, Moab's land was on the opposite side of the Philistines. The opposite side of the Philistines. The Philistines represent Religious formalism in the church. But the Moabites represent dead worldliness that borders the church. There's two opposites. One side and then the other. Philistines on one side. Religious formalism. Everything's so formal and so cut and dried that it has to be exactly this way. 
and it's so programmed that you've programmed the Lord out and the Holy Spirit out and, and even the worship out. That's what happens so many times. I get amazed at people that say, what is your program? The program is getting up here and singing and praying and preaching the Word. That's it. That's our program. And, you know, we, we try to carry it out. And I believe these are important things. And we have fellowship with one another as we come together as a family, a church family. We try to encourage one another, visit with one another, show concern for one another. And Paul says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's our that's the main effort we need to put forth. So, Philistines represent religious uh, formalism on, on the one side, and the Moabites represent dead worldliness that, that borders the church. And if you get religious formalism and worldliness together, and they crowd in and take over the whole aspect of church activity, you've got worldliness and formalism and all of it together is great corruption, isn't it? And they're on the border line. Remember, they're borderline. They're borderline in every church. And only a stand from the pastor and the teachers and the preachers and the layman and every member will keep that kind of thing at bay. It takes the conviction of everyone in the church to say, this church is not going to be a, a uh, religious formal church. This church is not going to be a worldly church that operates on the basis of worldliness and popularity and what the world likes and what they call religion, what they call Christianity. Remember, Christendom covers a broad specter of all the masses of society, but born-again Christians and Bible-believing Christians and and people that stand for the Word of God, uh, that's a different story. I had a man call me this afternoon and says, what kind of church is that? He says, I said, well, it's an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, Baptist church. <laughs> All, every bit of that. And he says, well, he says, uh, he asked a few more questions. I says, well, we're associated with the World Baptist Fellowship. We send missionaries everywhere. We're able to finance them all over the world. I said, uh, our school is in Arlington, Texas. It was a Bible Baptist seminary at Fort Worth. And then later, the Arlington Baptist College in Arlington, Texas. And I said, they teach the whole King James Version of the Bible. And uh, a few more things. It says, when the service? And I told him. But anyway, churches need to know what they believe and what they stand for. And not let these things creep in. And you could let worldliness creep into a church pretty easy. One guy says, you know, why don't we do this? Another one says, you know, I think that's a good idea. Why won't we do that? And the first thing you know, you've got a hundred things that have nothing to do with the program of God. And we waste all of our time on non-essentials. Now, the New Testament churches, they, they uh, started out with the essentials. And they, they stuck to them. And that's what you and I should do. Okay, let's get back to this. And the third thing about Moab, the nature of his opposition to faith. The church of per- Pergamos settling down in the world where Satan's seat is. If you go over in the book of Revelation, you'll find that the church of Pergamos settled down in the world where Satan's throne or seat is. And this represents the nature of opposition to faith. So, Moab opposes the true faith of the children of God and instead has 
settle down where Satan's seat is, so to speak. There are many things that we need to say about the Moabites here. This prophecy that we said within three years would come to pass would confirm the prophet's mission. In other words, because this would happen, it would confirm all the other and belief in all of his other prophecies. If a prophet tells you something and it comes to pass, well, you know that prophet, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, is of the Lord. And if he tells you something and it doesn't come to pass, well, that is not of the Lord, is it? It says if that thing that he prophesies or speaks about does not happen, then, you know, he's not of the Lord. Brother, that kind of divide things today, wouldn't it? We've got a lot of people telling what all is going to happen, what, uh, but, you know, it's not of God. And, beloved, you and I have to come back to God's Word. I mean, just every little thought that crosses our mind doesn't mean that it's a spiritual thought. You know, we might have a lot of things that are from the foolishness of our own uh, minds. Maybe we had uh, a hamburger with too much, many onions on it. And, you know, we had a dream. Well, you know, you're going to have a dream if you have that kind of thing before you go to bed at night. I want to have one after a while, but I'm going to... I'm going to stay up a long time before I go to bed. And so I won't have that kind of dream. The thing about it is I usually at least stay up two or three or four hours after I eat. And uh, so the thing about it I'm trying to get at is that all, all the things that just cross our little feeble minds doesn't mean it's divinely inspired. In fact, none of it's divinely inspired. This is divinely inspired. Sometimes we are inspired to do certain, certain things, but God's Word is the only thing that is divinely inspired. Otherwise, we'd be having new revelations every day, and people say, "Be writing the book till day, today, wouldn't it?" Ever, ever fellow that says, "I've got a revelation," write it down in the book, and the first thing you know, our Bible would be so big we couldn't even carry it. And by now, it would have been. But the thing we need to understand is that the prophet Isaiah was telling about what would happen to Moab, and and uh, because this prophet's uh, Word concerning Moab in three years, if you'll notice in verse uh, 14 of the sixth chapter. But now the Lord hath spoken, saying, the Lord has spoken. Isaiah didn't say, I've spoken. He says, the Lord has spoken. And by the way, the prophet of God says, the Lord has spoken. And thus saith the Lord. Saying, within three years, as the years of an hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be contemned, uh, with all that great multitude, and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. And so this prophecy would come to pass. Concerning Moab, it is foretold, and there are several things I want to mention them, about five things, that their chief city should be surprised by the enemy. Great changes and very dismal ones may be, be made in a very little time. And that's what they predicted, that these changes would take place. And dismal ones. And they'd be surprised by the enemy. The second thing, the Moabites would have recourse to their idols for relief. They would remember verse 2. It says, He has gone up of the 15th chapter. He's gone up to Bajath and to Debon, the high places to weep. Moab shall, Moab shall howl over Nebo and over Medeba. On all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. And it's speaking of the fact that they worship their idols and nothing good comes from it. Ungodly men, when in trouble, have no comfort in their idols. They are seldom brought to their, uh, brought by their terrors and their judgments to approach 
God who will forgive. They're, they're seldom brought to, with true sorrow and believing prayer. Someone says if God brings judgment, well then certainly people will repent. You read over in the book of Revelation, it says that they committed their adulteries and this and that and the other, and in spite of all of God's judgment, it says they would not repent. They would not turn to God. Did you know what happens to a rebellious heart? The, the more they sin, the harder they become. And the more God judges, the harder they become. That's what happened to old Pharaoh, wasn't it? God judged Pharaoh and he brought plagues of judgment by the hand of Moses. And old Pharaoh said, uh, Moses, take away this judgment. Take away this judgment. He says, I've sinned against God. And no sooner than Moses would entreat the Lord for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, then he would harden his heart against God. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's the attitude. You know, the, the real attitude about every one of us as God's children or as even uh, sinners upon this earth, which we all are, is to humble ourselves before God and repent of our sins. doesn't make any difference who we are. That, the true attitude is that God is God. And he, when He chastens, He judges, He corrects, we are to be in an attitude of accepting God's correction and coming to Him in repentance. And then he will forgive. It says, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man is thought. And God will heal, he will forgive and pardon, abundantly pardon. They're seldom brought by their terrors to approach God with, with true sorrow and believing prayer. God's forgiving too. And there should be the cries of, re, of grief through the land, is what uh, the prophet spoke of for Moab. By the way, it's a very poor relief to have many fellow sufferers and fellow mourners just because, just because uh, you're judged and you have to mourn over your condition and you have a lot of others to mourn with you. That's, that's not very much relief, is it? I mean, we're all being judged of God. When a, a nation is judged of God in every aspect, in every uh, family, in every uh, one of the people... And the whole land, it doesn't bring much relief to you if there's judgment upon the land. Because all of us suffer together. And it didn't bring relief to them. The courage of their soldiers would fail. You know, God can easily deprive a nation of that on which most depend for strength and defense. We glory in our army and our power and our strength and the military. And I'm glad we have it. And we should keep it that way. But let's not forget that God is overall. And that sometimes a few men can upset the battle against many. It did in the days of Gideon, right? God reduced the army of Gideon from 32,000 to 10,000 and then to 300 men. You say, my, he had an army of 32,000. Why didn't God leave them alone? He says, they're not fit to fight. He says, most of them are fearful and afraid. Let them go home. And God says, by this 300 though, the Midianites thought, well, we have 132,000 men. 132,000. My, I'll tell you, Israel had few enough at 32,000, didn't they? And then when God reduced them to 300, He says, you know why? God says to Gideon, He says, I don't want the, this army here to think that they've won this battle. I want them to realize that it's in God's hand. Sometimes that he, he does that to make us realize who's in control. But we don't need the glory in those things that we think are strength and defense, we need to thank God for it, for it and ask God's guidance and ask God to turn it the right way. 
You know, the Bible says and that the race, race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happened to them all. My brother Dan called me this week, Dan Storm, and he says he wanted to know where a certain verse of Scripture was, and I told him where it was. He's talking about whatsoever a man findeth to do, let him do it with his might. And I gave him Ecclesiastes 9, verse 12. And he's reading on down a few verses, and he says, I noticed it. He called me back, and he says, you know, I read another Scripture down there. It says, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. And he's reading it to me, and I says, you know, Dan, I said, that's true, isn't it? He says, I never thought of it. And I says, well, you know, the, the swift should win the race. And the strong should win the battle. Isn't it? But time and chance happen to them all. In other words, God has something. His God's providence has something to do with the winner. It's not very logical that a little church like this can grow and prosper and souls be saved and be established for 38 years and still be in the community when all the pressures and all the criticism and all the uh, evil opposition was against it. But it's here today. Because if God be for us, what? Who can be against us? And the main thing you've got to figure out, and all of us have to figure out, if God is on our side, and we want to be on God's side, and we want God on our side. And if that's the case, don't worry about it. The next thing, these calamities should cause grief in the neighboring parts. Though enemies to Israel, yet our fellow creatures... It should be grievous to see them in such distress. The prophet describes the woeful lamentations, verses 6 through 9, and uh, heard through the country of Moab when it became a prey for the Assyrian army. The country should be plundered, and famine is usually a sad effect of war. Remember, in the book of Revelation, when you have the famine come, you have, I mean, when you have the war come, then later on the other horses are. Uh, come through there, the four horses of Revelation chapter 6, and then famine is one, and then death, right? And so you have these things happen. And those who are eager to get abundance of this world and to lay up what they have gotten, little consider how soon, soon it will be taken away from them. Brother Bay mentioned Sunday morning when he was singing this song, Lay not up for yourselves what? Treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt where thieves would break through and steal. He just mentioned the treasures, but I'm quoting the Scripture. And then he goes on to say, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and thieves do not break through nor steal. And what you have of this world's goods, of, of a roof over your head, of a home, a house, a shelter, food and clothing, and the necessities of life, Nowadays, an automobile is a necessity to get to work and back and various other things. Just thank God for those provisions and don't make all of this earth your treasure because we're going to leave it every bit behind shortly because life is short and death is sure and sin is a curse and Christ is a cure. And I think we ought to start thinking more seriously about the things that were of eternity. So, while we warn our enemies to escape from ruin, let's pray for them that they may seek and find forgiveness of their sins. Verses 1 through 5, God tells sinners what they may do to prevent ruin. So he, he does to Moab. He tells Moab just as what all should do. Let them send a tribute. We're talking about 16th chapter now. Notice it says, Send your lamb to the ruler of the land. 
let them send the tribute they formerly engaged to pay to Judah and take it as good advice to send this tribute. If they had listened to Isaiah, they'd been better off. They didn't do that. They wanted, they were full, filled with pride. They wouldn't do what they were told to do. When the prophet, when God's word and God's prophet tells you what to do, it's ours to obey, isn't it? And they would not do that. Isaiah says, send you the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. And refusal to do that, for it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon, because they would refuse to do what they were told to do. Let them send the tribute they had formerly engaged to pay to Judah. Take it as good advice from the prophet. Break off from your sins by righteousness. It may lengthen thy quiet and thy peace. And this may be applied to the great gospel duty of submission to Christ too. Someone says, how does that apply to me that Moab was to pay tribute? Send the lamb, you and I, the best that you have, yourselves really a living sacrifice. The Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. So we have a duty too, don't we? And by the way, those that will not submit to Christ shall be as a bird that wanders from her nest, which is snatched up by the next bird of prey. It says in verse 2, For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. And we can take the same lesson to heart for ourselves. Those who will not yield to the fear of God shall be made to yield to the fear of everything else. The Bible teaches us to fear God, to trust Him. He advises them to be a kind of the seed of Israel. They would not do it. Moab, the Moabites would not do that. Those that expect to find favor when, when in trouble themselves must show favor to those in trouble. If you expect to find favor when you're, when you're in trouble yourself, what are you to do when someone else is in trouble? Amen. What did Jesus say? He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Right? Okay? You say, I need mercy. Well, where are you going to get it? How are you to other folks? How have you acted to someone else? I've seen people bemoan their condition, but I never saw them before in life showing any concern about the other fellow's condition. And that may be why they're in such condition. And I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to be scriptural because the Bible does tell us, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And, and you do it with love and with sympathy and with caring. It says, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness, right? I think it's Romans chapter 12, telling about the gifts and how we're to take care of them. So anyway, the thing about it is we need to put these things into practice. And what is said here concerning the throne of Hezekiah also belongs in a higher sense to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though by subjection to him we may not enjoy worldly riches or honors, but but may be exposed to poverty and contempt, and we may, we shall have peace of conscience and eternal life. It doesn't make any difference about what we do not have. We may not enjoy worldly riches or honors, and we may be exposed to poverty, and we may be exposed to contempt, 
But in the midst of all that, can you imagine, in the midst of all that, we can have peace of conscience, and certainly we have eternal life because we're God's children. I have much more to say about this. I wanted to finish it tonight. I'll try to hurry and say the rest of the things I need to say. I'll try to hurry. Uh, Verses 6 through, through 14, those who will not be counseled cannot be helped. It speaks of their pride. In verse 6, you have heard, chapter 16, verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud, even of his hauntness and his pride. Notice how many times pride is mentioned and his wrath, but his life shall not be so. What are we talking about? Those that will not be counseled cannot be helped. More souls are ruined by pride than any other sin whatever. Also, the very proud are commonly are commonly very passionate. With lies, many seek to gain gratification of pride and passion, but they shall not uh, compass uh, proud and angry projects. What are we saying? Sometimes they seem to be very passionate. Have you seen people that were so proud and at the same time so wrong that they would pursue that with great passion, regardless of how wrong, you just say, don't do that. That's not the right way. Don't... Don't crusade that situation. A lot of times Christians get on a crusade. I mean, boy, I tell you. I mean, we're going to do this. We're going to do that and the other. doesn't mean you shouldn't be led to do the right thing. I'm not talking about that. But everything just becomes a, a passionate uh, ideal that you've got to carry out come hell or high water. If you want to pardon the expression. They're going to do it regardless. And uh, sometimes we need to think a little bit. There's, there are ways to do things that's are right, that are right. Moab was famous for fields and vineyards, but they shall be laid waste by an invading army. God can sur- soon turn our laughter into mourning and our joy into heaviness. And they have no... Look, in verse 10, And gladness is taken away, and joy out of the plentiful field, and in the vineyards there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. And he says, I have made their vintage shouting to cease. God is able to bring it to naught, isn't he? The prophet looks with concern on the desolations of such a pleasant country, and it causes inward grief. And the false gods of Moab are unable to help them. And the God of Israel, the only true God, can and will make good what he has spoken. Let Moab know her ruin is very near, he said, in three years, and prepare the most awful declarations of divine wrath. Discover the way of escape to those who take warning. If you, if God's judgment, didn't it happen for Nineveh? What happened to Nineveh? Oh, Jonah came in, he said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And boy, he was glad to pronounce judgment upon that wicked city. I mean that great city. And he thought, boy, God's going to do this now. And I'm, my, this prophet's going to be true. And everything's going to happen. Well, what he said was true. The threat was there and God was true. But they met conditions. They met such conditions that God says, I'm not going to do it because of their repentance. God didn't change his mind. His his mind was made up to judge them. But on the other hand, his mind is always that if people repent, he will withdraw judgment. So God, that's a principle of action with God. Someone says, God just changed his mind and, and didn't do what the prophet said. No, Nineveh changed their minds and they repented, and that's what repentance is, a change of mind and heart. And they turned to God, 
And when they did, God says, okay, I'm going to spare that city. Well, it made Jonah kind of look bad. But Jonah was more concerned about his own reputation than he was a whole city that repented at his preaching. Man, he ought to have been happy. He said, I preached the message of judgment and every one of them repented. Man, there's not too many preachers who have done that. He ought to have took stock in that instead of turning around and crying and had him sit under a gourd that grew up. God says, well, okay, Jonah, I'll let this gourd grow up to shade you from the heat of the sun and so on and so forth. Let me finish this quickly. There is no escape but by submission to Christ and devoting ourselves to Him. And at length, when the appointed time comes, all the glory and prosperity and the multitude of the wicked shall perish, but we'll go on. We can understand the pride of a city like Babylon, that great city, but what did this little tiny nation of Moab have to boast about? Their pride kept them from submitting to Judah, and and this led to their defeat, and their boasting would turn into wailing and their songs into funeral dirges. Moab would become like a vineyard trampled down and a fruitful field left unharvested. And by the way, Isaiah describes the prophet's grief and the Lord's grief over them and over the destruction of Moab. And God says in Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And Isaiah, let me give you this last thought and I'll guarantee you I will close. Isaiah could have rejoiced at the destruction of an old enemy But instead, he wept. And let me read this verse of Scripture for you. It says this, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 24, verses 17 and 18. It says, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. In other words, never gloat over another person's uh, sad condition. Because your joy may be far more punishable sin than the guilt of your enemy. So when we see a brother fall, or when we see something bad happen to someone, and even though you and I may say, well, he had it coming, don't gloat over it. Because the Bible says, when a brother is overtaken in a fall, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. In the spirit of weakness... A spirit of meekness, I should say, lest thou also be tempted. And we'll find later on, and I'd like to get to it, that these people are going to be with God in the end because they're going to repent. You see, God's grace is sufficient to cover all of our sins. It doesn't make any difference if we're under the curse of God and under the judgment of God. His grace is sufficient to cover it all. Thank you for your patience, your kind attention. I realize I kept you about ten minutes longer, but I wanted to finish this lesson. We'll study.